0: Okay, let's let's read the text, okay? Because this is an interesting chapter here, and it can be confusing a little bit. So let's read the text. Revelation 11. You with me? I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation. Revelation 11 says, Then there was given me, and this is John the Apostle speaking, Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, get up, And measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for forty-two months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for twelve hundred and sixty days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone, anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that the rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Those from the peoples and the tribes and the tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies. For three and a half days, they will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life came, the, the breath of life, I'm sorry, from God came into them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up into heaven in the cloud and their enemies watched them. And in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe was passed. Behold, the third woe was coming quickly. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth." And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the Ark of the Covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. There's a lot going on there, isn't it? A lot going on. Before we dive into that text and do our best to try to get some understanding, let's remember where we are. Chapter 1, the Lord is seen, raised from the dead. Chapters 2 through 3, the messages to the seven seven churches. Chapter 4, we got a vision of God the Father on his throne. Chapter 5, Jesus comes and he takes the book that is sealed with seven seals. This book is in the right hand of God. In chapter 6, the first six seals are broken. The overall message of Revelation is told. Chapter 7 is an interlude, the question of what's going to happen to the people of God when God executes judgment on his enemies. That question is answered. Chapter 8, the seven seals, or the seventh seal, I'm sorry, opens up the seven trumpets. The first four trumpets have to do with natural calamities, judgments that God would bring through natural disasters on the earth. God was hoping these judgments would have led the people to what? Repentance. They did not repent. In chapter 9, we find the next two judgments. These were even more severe, but Rome still did not repent. Chapter 10, we saw that because of their refusal to repent, God decided to bring a final judgment upon the empire. He decided that the time for repentance was up. And then in chapter 11, the continuation of the interlude, God is going to disclose the, the outcome to the war. Basically, in this chapter, you find a summary for the rest of the book. Now, remember again in chapter 10, God gave them a chance to repent. He sent judgments that were designed to cause them to repent. They refused to. Seven peals of thunder symbolized judgments God could have sent, but he didn't. No more warnings were coming. The little book that was in that chapter, remember the little book that was mentioned there? contains information about the seventh angel that had yet to sound. The message of the little book was going to be both good and bad. It was going to be good for who? God's people, but bad for? That's right, the enemies. And then towards the end of chapter 11, the seventh angel will finally sound. Chapter 11. This chapter summarizes the rest of this prophetic book. God will reveal the outcome to this spiritual war. He's going to go ahead and tell his people what's going to happen. In chapters 12 through 22, he retells the events of this chapter in more detail. The purpose of this chapter, chapter 11, was to inform his people that the kingdom of God will prevail against their enemies. This was designed to motivate them to hang in there a little longer. The next few chapters, chapters 12 through 15, are building up to the climax of the book which is found in chapter 16. It is crucial that we do not allow the symbolic language in this chapter to confuse us. We can't let that happen. A sequence of events are transpiring in these chapters. A story is being told that pertains to the final outcome of the battle between the kingdom of God and the workers of Satan. Now, here are some key things that we should have noticed or we need to notice in this chapter we got a temple being measured and the holy city is trampled. Do you notice that? Two witnesses prophesy. When the testimony, their testimony is finished, the beast overcomes and kills them. As a result, the earth rejoices and their bodies lie for three and a half days. The witnesses rise up. They ascend and a tenth part of the city falls. The seventh trumpet then sounds, and the kingdoms of the world become the Lord's. Now, I got to tell you a few things, and I hope you don't get too upset with me here, but because this is such a meaty chapter and there's so much I need to do this morning, I'm going to have to limit comments. I usually don't do that, but I got to do it today. So please forgive me for that. We got all kinds of people in the room. We got new Christians. We got seasoned Christians And I got to navigate through this with great precision. And I I just need you to just allow me to let you know when the comments can come in. So just don't raise your hand until I cue you on that, because I got to keep my train of thought. We got a lot to talk about right now. I also want to say that it's because I know many of you are great Bible students, and I mean that with sincerity. You may disagree with some of the things I say. You may disagree with my interpretation of these things. And I'm totally fine with that. I would just ask that we don't hash that out here. Let's talk about it later. I, I'll give you all the time you want if you want to talk about it in private, but I don't want to make this any more confusing than it, already, than it already is, as you can see. So let's start with verse number one. Let's go to verse number one. In verse one, we find a temple, the temple of God being measured. I'll ask this right now. I know for well, so a little quick participation. Can you remember anywhere in the Old Testament where something like this was done? Yes. Ezekiel. The last few chapters of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel does something similar to what you find here. So John, the apostle, was given a measuring rod, right? He's given a measuring rod and he's told the to measure of the temple. The inside of the temple was measured. But what happened to the outside or the outer court? It's not measured. And why is it not measured? Who was it given to? The Gentiles. The Gentiles are going to do what to it? They're going to trample it. They're going to trample it. Now, in the vast majority of the New Testament, the temple of God is usually a reference to what in, in the majority of the New Testament? It's the church. It's a reference to the church. Paul makes that clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We are the temple of God. The Old Testament temple was a shadow of what we are. We are the real deal. We're we're the true temple of God, and God dwells among us. He's dwelling among us right now. And we have that presence of God, that fellowship with God, because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's how powerful his blood is, that it gave us complete access to God, even right now, as God's temple. So the temple is in the New Testament is usually a reference to the church, the people of God, the redeemed, the saved. I take verse one, this is my thinking on it from my study, and I, I you know, I, I try to teach what I believe to be true. I take verse number one to be similar to what we find in Revelation 7. I believe that the measuring of the temple here represents God marking and sealing his people again. I believe that God is promising here to save and protect the souls of his people. The souls of his people. As some scholars say, the language here is referring to God saving and protecting the inner being of his people. But the outer part is going to be different. Inner, outer. I think that's what the language is symbolic of. God's going to save the souls of his people while at the same time he's he's letting them know that they're going to suffer some persecution. They're going to suffer outwardly, but inwardly they would be saved. In verse 2, the scripture says the outside of the temple would be given to who? The nations. The Gentiles the inner is going to be okay it's the outer that's going to be trampled it's going to be trampled the scripture says that the Gentiles will tread underfoot the holy city for how long 42 months which would be equivalent to what by three and a half years so we know in Revelation the number seven is a big number right Seven typically represents completeness. So this is half of seven. So this is not a full, complete amount of time. This is a period of time, but not a a complete period of time. The holy city, the holy city, the Gentiles are going to trample the holy city. I believe the holy city is a reference to the church again. The temple is the church and the holy city is the church. The Hebrew writer makes reference to the church as the holy city. Do You remember that in Hebrews? Go to Hebrews with me, chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 22. And this is something that so often we miss as Christians. We, we so often we rob ourselves mentally of the blessings that we have right now as we travel through life. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 22 the Hebrews writer says, and he's talking to Christians, he says that you have come. Not you're going. You're already there. You have come to Mount Zion. Remember Mount Zion, that's where that's that's where Jerusalem was built. It was built on a mountain. That's where the temple was on Mount Zion. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. The heavenly Jerusalem, notice, you're already at the heavenly Jerusalem. And to myriads of angels, to the general assembly, and the church, notice, the church is the heavenly Jerusalem in this text. The church is the city of the living God. You've come to to that, the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. I believe that Revelation is making the same reference to the holy city that the Hebrew writer does. It's talking about the church. The church was going to be trampled underfoot for a period of time. The church was going to suffer persecution. I believe that's a reference to the church. The the, the nations tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. The church is going to be persecuted. The church will be persecuted by the Gentiles. By those of the Roman Empire. But then... We have these two witnesses. These two witnesses who prophesy for 1,260 days, which again is equivalent to what? Say that again, somebody? Three and a half years. Three and a half years. My, my time of that, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not that good at math, but I got about three and a half on that one too. Did y'all get that? I think it's the same thing. Yeah, i round it up just a little bit. But, but I'm not that good at math done, so I, I tried. But still, it's not seven. It's still half of seven. That's the point. So the two witnesses prophesy for 1,260 days after it tells us the holy city was going to be trampled. The number two. Many suggest in an apocalyptic literature, the number two stands for strength and unity companionship. You can see that in Ecclesiastes. The number two is even used that way. Now, some think that these two witnesses refer to two specific people. If you hold that view, that's fine. You could be right. Some say, well, this refers to Moses and Elijah. I can see how they would say that. I don't take that view. Even though I think there is some language here that makes you think of Moses and Elijah. Did y'all catch that? Some say this is a reference to Moses and Elijah. Some say this is a reference to Peter and Paul. The uh, preterists take that view. I take a more simplistic view. Preterists, those who believe that the whole book of Revelation uh, was completed in 70 A.D. They think this is a reference to Peter and Paul. I'll take a more simplistic view. I take the view of when Jesus sent his people out to preach the gospel, he sent them out how? Two by two. So I believe the language here, is a reference to God's people proclaiming the gospel throughout the world. I think this is a reference to the people of God going out for a period of time, preaching the gospel, spreading the borders of the kingdom. I think this makes sense when you put it with verse number four. Because in verse number four, these two witnesses are also called what else? Olive trees and what else? Lampstands. Lampstands support light, and olive trees provide the oil for the lamps. Even though God's people were being persecuted, they're going to shine forth the light, the light of the gospel throughout the world. Go ahead, Don. I so see you jumping at the pit. Go ahead. Uh, no, go ahead, sir. Go ahead. The, the, the two olive trees, if, if you go back to Zechariah. And I was going to say that. Zechariah 4. Zechariah 4. Let's get the ruler and the high priest together for all authority and word. Yes. And I think that's what's going on here. I think it's the Lord Jesus Christ and his people working together to spread the gospel. And and I actually was just about to say that you find similar language to this in the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter four, for you to read that later. But I believe here this language is symbolic of the Lord and his people spreading the gospel, spreading the borders of the kingdom. I think verses 5 through 6 talk about the same thing. I think verses 5 through 6 refer to the preaching of the gospel by God's people and them confirming the message with miracles. Remember Mark 16 where Jesus told his people, Mark 16, uh, let's just look at that. Let's just read it instead of me just trying to quote it right now. Hang with me. This all makes sense, I believe, in a little bit. Just hang with me. Remember, there's a story being told. This is the story of Revelation. This is the story of the rest of the book. That's how you have to look at it, I believe. But it's being told in an apocalyptic way. In Mark 16 and verse 15, Jesus told his people, go into all the world and preach the gospel. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. He who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Verse 17 says these signs, miraculous signs, will accompany those who have believed in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then, when the Lord Jesus has spoken to them, he was received up into heaven, and he sat at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them. And he confirmed the word with the signs that follow. Now, go back to Revelation Revelation chapter 11 here, I think verse number five is a reference to the Christians preaching and the power of the gospel. I believe as they go out and preach the gospel, they're going to be persecuted, but they have something, a message that's as powerful as fire. They have a dynamite message. They have the gospel. So even though people are trying to stop them, they continue to preach the gospel. They're not harmed. A powerful message flows out of their mouth like fire. That message is able to conquer all their enemies. The gospel is a message of conquering. It conquers hearts. It conquers wickedness. So because of that, the people want to kill them. Now, in verse 6, I think that language, there's a reference to them confirming the message with miracles. Elijah did that in his time. Elijah demonstrated that he was a true prophet because not only did he prophesy, but he did what else when he prayed? He stopped the rain. He stopped the rain literally for three and a half years. And then the second part of verse number six is a reference to what Moses did. Moses demonstrated that he was a true prophet of God by doing what? But even before that, the plagues All the plagues, all the things he did before Pharaoh were signs that he was a true prophet of God and that Pharaoh needed to listen to God. I believe verses five and six to summarize it simply is the gospel is going out. It is a powerful message. It's like fire coming from the mouth of God's people. And the people are confirming this with miraculous signs. Does that harmonize with the New Testament? Did not the people of God preach the gospel? Did they not conquer the hearts of of people? And did did they not confirm that with miraculous signs? The Lord said they would. That's what happened. So I think that's what's going on there. Now, when you look at the next few verses, as a result of them preaching the gospel and confirming the message with miraculous signs, The beast wants to kill them. I believe in this context, not later, I'm talking about this context, I think the beast is a reference to Satan. You may want to say it's a reference to the workers of Satan. Same thing, I can think we can go both ways with that. But the one who opposes God, I believe Satan here, makes war with the saints. He overcomes and he kills them. The world does not give them proper burials. And the world celebrates it. Verse number seven. Verse number seven talks about the beasts coming up out of the abyss to make war and overcome and kill the people of God. I think that's a reference to Satan and his henchmen. They're, de- they're, they're killed. Again, this is a work of Satan. And their bodies lie in the street. I think the reference to Sodom and Egypt there is a reference just to wickedness. Rome had become a wicked and corrupt empire, like Sodom, like Egypt. And in verse number nine... We see that the people of the empire, the wicked, they don't even give them a proper burial. They mock them. they ridicule them. They give them no honor in their death or in their deaths. And in verse number 10, we see not only do they, not only do they not honor the people of God in their deaths, but they celebrate. It. It's a party. They think they're winning. We're going to rid the world of these Christians. I think this is a reference to Satan persecuting the people of God and the wicked celebrating, celebrating this. But they think they've won. They only think they've won. After a period of time, God's people are vindicated. The cause is not utterly defeated as the enemy supposed. God's people reign with him in victory. This caused the enemies to have great fear in their hearts as they experience the judgment of God. We look at verse number 11. Three and a half days after a period of time, not a complete amount of time, a period of time. The people of God, they're vindicated. I think the idea of breath, the breath of life from God came into them. The the cause of God is rejuvenated. They're vindicated. Vindication has come. I think that's further emphasized in verse number 12. Verse 12, I think the idea there of they are coming up to God is the idea of vindication. The cause is not over. God's people are being vindicated by the Lord. Verse 13, I think, talks about the judgment of God. God not only vindicates His people, but He vindicates them through judgment. He brings judgment upon the empire. And as a result of the judgment that comes from God, the end of verse 13 says the people are terrified, and some of them even start bringing glory to God. So I think we see the vindication of God's cause in those verses. And then in verse 15 down to verse number 19, the seventh trumpet sounds. And God's judgment, God brings judgment to Rome, and Christ reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords. Verse number 15 again. And then after this, I'll open the floor for some comments. But in verse 15, it talks about The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. He's going to reign forever. God's people are victorious, even though it appeared they were going to be defeated. This causes the people of God and those in heaven to praise God, to worship God, verse 16, to give thanks to God, verse 17, to celebrate God because his wrath came and he judged these enemies of his people the cause of God was vindicated. But that's not even the best news. I think the best news is found in verse 19, where we see God's people at the end of all of this are given access into God's perfect presence. Why would I say that? There are three things that stand out to me there. First, something is opened in verse 19. What's opened? Heaven is opened, the scripture says. So you have God's people going to heaven and then you have something else mentioned, a very sacred item from the Old Testament? The Ark. Can somebody tell me? And I'll open up the floor now for, for, a, little, for a few comments here. The Ark. Where was the Ark of the Covenant and the Old Testament temple? And who, who was the only one that could go in there? And when did he go in there? What day was that? Day of Atonement. So the high priest goes into the most holy place once a year on the Day of Atonement to offer a sacrifice for himself and the, and the sins of the people. He was only going allowed in there once a year. Inside the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. That above it were cherubim, right? And, the, and, and that all represented God's perfect presence with his people on earth. And inside the Ark of the Covenant were three different items, right? Do you remember one of them? The cases. The, the, okay, so I heard two there. We got the, the manna that came from heaven while Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. You have uh, Aaron's rod. And you have a copy of the, of the law, the Ten Commandments. And all of those things, And I've even preached in the sermon, point to Jesus in some way right? Aaron's rod symbolized when God picked Aaron to be the high priest, even though there was people rebelling against that. And Jesus is the ultimate high priest. He's the ultimate leader of God's people. The law, the law which came through Moses, well, Jesus is the ultimate lawgiver. We live under the new covenant. We live under what James calls the perfect law of liberty. And then the manna The manna which fell from heaven. Well, Jesus in John 6 said, I am the true bread that comes out of heaven. When you eat me, you won't die like your ancestors, but you will live forever. So Jesus, when he went into heaven, he entered into the perfect presence of God. His sacrifice then gives us access to God as his his priest, and he's our high priest. But here we see here that the Ark of the Covenant is present. And you have heaven is open. All of this is showing us how God's people have access to being in his perfect presence. That's what heaven is all about. In fact, I think the rest of this language is just Old Testament symbols, to make it simple, of God's powerful presence. The lightning, the sounds, the peals of thunder, the earthquake, the great hailstorm. I mean, how can you really describe the presence of God? How can you really describe the power of God? How can you really describe the majesty of God? I believe this is about the best you're going to be able to do. Uh, So I think this last part of this language just refers to when it's all said and done, God's people are going to be with him in heaven. I think the the end of the book makes that same reference. So let me just let's catch our breath. (laughs) because A lot of y'all were looking at me like, what in the world is God teaching here? We had to go to the elders on him. So let, let, me, let me just pause for just a second, and let's catch our breath. Lance, you had a comment. Maybe some other people have comments or questions. Let's go ahead and open up the floor now. Go ahead, Lance. Go ahead, sir. If you're saying about describing this
1: your last comment? Yes, sir. It
0: just reminds me very much of Mount Sinai, except this isn't supposed to be scary. It's just supposed to be impressive. It, that's, the, that's a great word. In fact, that's, I was trying to think of a word to kind of describe that. And I and I was just struggling, but impressive. That's the word. This is 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 in, it's supposed to make a great impression. This is showing the impressiveness of God. Uh, and even then, we kind of it's a, it's not strong enough still, you know. But I think that's a good way to describe it. Good, good point. Anyone? Yes, sir, Brother Ryan. Then done after that. Go right ahead. Does, uh, verse 15 you, of you say what? What verse was that again, sir? Verse fifteen. Verse 15. Oh, of Psalm 2? Absolutely. I haven't thought about that before, Ryan. I, I really don't know. Could be. I'm not sure. I don't want to answer that yes or no because I, really, I honestly don't know. I, I really just thought about that when you just said it. But it does absolutely remind me of that. Good, good observation. Brother Dunn, go right ahead, sir. Yes. And in all of this, we've got those who are under the authority of the Father and the Son, who are taken care of, and you've got those who are following after the driving and the temptation of Satan, yes. who are doing their thing. The one appears to win, but loses in the end, which goes back to a three. No, that's exactly right. He will bruise you on the heel; you will crush him on the head. Uh, Christ ultimately crushes Satan uh, in every way. You know, I, I like something you said there I want to make reference to again about these people working for Satan. And, it, and it's interesting how when people work for Satan so often, they don't even realize it. They don't realize they don't, they don't walk around saying, hey, we're doing Satan's will. We're we're proud of that. Sometimes people think they're doing the right thing when they're actually working for Satan the whole time. This is why it's so important to study the, the Bible and have an honest heart. Had these people been listening to the gospel and accepted Jesus, and had they been even impressed with the miraculous power of the saints, they wouldn't have been doing the devil's work. Wasn't that easy? Saint, yeah, Absolutely. Blaming Satan. Uh, and, 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 and that's another thing. The devil doesn't make anybody do anything. He just puts something out there, a temptation, and we make a decision. As to whether or not we're going to give in to that. So let me just show you this, because maybe it'll make more sense here, because we, we went through a lot. This is the story of the rest of Revelation. This is Revelation to me. The temple was measured. Verse one, God's people are accounted for. I know my people. I seal my people. I'm going to make sure my people, and I think Brother Greg even made a reference to this at some point, and I think it's right on the money, where God doesn't promise to protect us from the physical harm, but he does promise that if we do his will and serve him, he will protect us and save us spiritually. And isn't that what's most important? The inner salvation, being your soul being saved. So I think God's people are accounted for and promised to be protected spiritually even if they die god is going to take care of them that same thing is true today the holy city city trodden the church is persecuted the gentiles persecute the lord's people they persecute the holy city the two witnesses prophesy i think this is a reference to god's people when i'm preaching the gospel they're being persecuted they're being persecuted for preaching the gospel the beast overcomes and kills them the apparent like you said the apparent victory of satan the earth rejoices at this apparent victory. The witness's body lay in the street three and a half days. This is, again, is the apparent defeat of God's people. We're trying to rid the world of Christians. We kill them. We don't give them honorable burials. We celebrate that these people are dying. We're trying to rid the world of these people. But the witnesses rise up. That is, the cause of God is vindicated. The witnesses rise up, a sin. And then God's judgment, 10th part of the city falls. God is executing judgment. The cause of Christ is vindicated to eventually, when the seventh trumpet finally sounds, the kingdoms of the world become the Lord's. Now, what do you think that means real quick? That language, because different translations translate it differently. I think the New American Standard, from what I've studied, is is very very accurate with the, the way it is in the Greek. Don may be able to correct me on that more. But what do you think that language refers to? The kingdoms of the world become the Lord's. Yes, that's exactly what it means. It just means God's cause has prevailed. Daniel 2.44 has been fulfilled. Yes, sir, go right ahead, Brother Gary. Another thing we see in the two witnesses rising is the world is aware we haven't and can't defeat this thing called They can't shut us up. Brother Gary said the world, reco- and the world recognized this. That this cause was going to continue. And Jesus said it would always continue. He said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the world. And notice how the kingdom of God continues to stand. Rome is gone. Rome's been gone a long time. And all these different empires have risen and fallen, all these different kingdoms. And there may become a time when America's no more. But guess what's still going to be around? God's kingdom. It's not going anywhere. Brother Lance, yes, sir. Well, one of the things I found. Alive on earth. That gives me great joy. Yes. No matter how bad it's going to get, yes. there still will be Christians alive. We, we will always be God's people on this earth because the gospel is powerful. It's like that, that fire. It's like fire coming out the mouth. It's a dynamic message that pierces hearts because of its source. It comes from God. Sister Peggy, yes, ma'am. I think when, uh, and, when the May, y- yes, ma'am. The covenant, you said the ark represents the covenant of God, the promise of God. Absolutely. That's exactly right. And that was to comfort them. So I think (laughs) I may have a row of people down here lined up. Well, you might have to start the car and get me out of here. But I think you can see this. But let me just say this before we close. Do you see now why I kept stressing these guideposts Do you see that now? Why I kept emphasizing, we have to understand the style of the book. This is an apocalyptic book. One of the reasons why Revelation is the most abused book in the Bible is because people go to it and they read it literally. They're waiting for this literally to happen. They think this stuff literally happened. No, this is apocalyptic language. Signs and symbols, the genre of the book. The background, when you understand, when you keep reminding yourself that Christians are being persecuted during this time, then it makes more sense. When you remind yourself of the audience, the seven churches of Asia, people in the hot zone of Roman persecution, when you remind yourself of the time frame, these things will surely come to pass. When you remind yourself of the theme, Christ wins. I believe that that this interpretation of this chapter fits right in line with everything found in chapter one apocalyptic, persecution, early Christians shortly come to pass. Christ wins. It's all there. Now, before we close, let me just say this. (laughs) If you disagree with all of this, I want you to know we can still be friends. I love you. It's okay to disagree on this kind of stuff. This is not baptism. okay? it's not repentance. It's not marriage, divorce, remarriage. We're talking about trying to interpret an apocalyptic book. I will say, maybe you agree with this, the original audience, when they read it, do you think they got it pretty easy? Oh, yeah, they got it pretty easy. They were familiar with that genre. We got to work a little bit harder. We got to work a little bit harder. We got to study our Old Testament more. The the, the Jews, especially the Jewish Christians, they knew the Old Testament like that. I mean, it was nothing. They memorized the whole thing. We got to work hard to study our Old Testament, and we have to work harder to understand the nature of apocalyptic language. Again, I want to recommend a book to you, okay? If you go on Amazon or if you like to read, there's a short little book. It's only about 90 pages, maybe 100. It's an easy read, but it's a great book. It was written by Mark Roberts. We know, we know Mark Roberts, preacher out in Texas, Dallas, Texas. We're going to have him for a meeting, I think, in a few years. Mark's one of my favorite preachers. He wrote a book, a little book called Understanding Apocalyptic Literature. It's an easy read. You'll probably get it on Amazon or something. I would recommend that book to you. Uh, and it really goes through that and talks about how this genre was used by the Jews over and over again. And you find a lot of it in the Apocrypha. So it's called Understanding Apocalyptic Literature by Mark Roberts. I would recommend that book to you. Okay? Let's stop right there. Thank y'all so much. I appreciate y'all being patient with me. Uh, we'll try to pick up with chapter 12 and keep them with our schedule on, on Wednesday.